CLS is the weighing machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. CLS is the weighing machine is inspired by two ideas. The first is the classic investing truism attributed to Benjamin Graham, that the stock market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine in the long run. In other words, emotion drives short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations drive returns over time. The second idea is CLS's investment methodology of risk budgeting. Represented by the scales, risk budgeting measures and manages risk to suit the needs of each investor. Welcome to CLS's The Weighing Machine. We hope you enjoy it. And as always, please let us know what you think. On the podcast today, where to find value, how to add tax alpha to returns, and the rise of artificial intelligence. We'll discuss all of that with our guest, CLS Portfolio Manager, Grant Engelbart. Also on the podcast today, we'll talk about the race to zero, how to evaluate active managers, and how to avoid a shark bite. I will also turn the tables on my co-host and ask her the questions. <laughs> Welcome to CLS's The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. All right, let's begin with a look back at the markets. You know, you ask me this question every podcast, and I always struggle. What time frames are we really talking about? So... Um, I usually talk about the last couple of weeks since the last podcast, but let's just look at some of the year-to-date numbers. So okay. right now, um, we are actually looking at, we're on pace for another above-average year, another double-digit gain in the markets. The market's up over 5%. Um, you know, it's really interesting, too, is that since the bull market began, we've talked about this on the podcast, I think it's a really interesting point, but since the bull market has started um, back in 2009, the annualized rate of return has basically been 20%. The, the U.S. stock market has never been able to achieve that over a 10-year time frame, so we're on the cusp of that. Growth stocks right now do have almost a 21% return uh, annualized uh, since the bull market began. Small caps are over 20%. And another area that's been really been beat up of late are real estate investment trusts are also still having annualized 20% return since the bull market began. I think those are really amazing numbers, and quite frankly, we could not we could set history here. Again, what's really driving returns, it, it's not everything. It's really the larger companies, it's the growth-oriented companies, it's technology companies, it's the companies now considered consumer cyclicals that kind of have that tech bias to it. Those That's what's doing really well this year. Energy stocks are also doing well this year. Um, what's not doing so well, of course, is international. That is a prominent position we have in CLS portfolios. And uh, while developed markets such as Europe and Japan are still higher in the year, emerging markets now do have a small loss. Uh, we still like those areas for the reason why I liked them before. Uh, we think they still have superior long-term growth prospects. They clearly have better valuations, so we're maintaining those positions. Uh, bonds are still down on the year, despite the fact that interest rates have risen. They're down about 2%, but they've done their job in terms of uh, diversifying portfolios, moderating overall portfolio volatility. And lastly, commodities. Commodities were leading uh, this year in terms of performance, but uh, they're still about 5% on the year. Uh, the stock market has sort of taken the lead back from us. So anyway, it's been, a, quite frankly, it's been a good year to be an investor again. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we have a lot to get to today. So let's bring in our guest, CLS Portfolio Manager, Grant Engelbart. Grant, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. Well, you wrote about value in your weekly three this week. So first, I want to clarify a bit. We've written and said here on the show many times that the U.S. market is currently overvalued. But you write that it's a bit, it's a bit more nuanced than that. So looking at various metrics, the U.S. market is either fairly valued or slightly to overly valued. What's the gray area here? 
Yeah, I think it kind of depends on your commentary that you choose to read um, from week to week. But uh, occasionally, you know, stock market um, participants and, and uh, major investment firms will kind of show valuations on a number of different metrics. There's a, there's a lot of different ways to measure value. Uh, forward PE, trailing PE, cyclically adjusted PE, um, the Fed model, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, some of those are showing, you know, maybe more fair, fairly valued level. Um, but for, for most things that we look at, uh, generally, the market, you know, the U.S. stock market is in the overvalued territory. And we like to use, um, you know, kind of as we'll discuss, a composite of valuation metrics, um, which kind of takes out some of those uh, biases that, that we encounter uh, in other places. And you're right that there are plenty of opportunities for investors with a multi-year time horizon. So let's run through some of those. Sure. So using um, our, it's kind of become a fairly popular piece that we put out as our monthly chart pack, um, where we take four different valuation metrics and then we um, put those together and uh, create a composite of historical returns or historical valuation composites for a variety of asset classes. And we do this all over the world and look at it relative to the, the global market. Um, we, we find right now that, you know, uh, there, there are actually a lot of opportunities. So we hear the narrative of the U.S. stock market being overvalued. And if you look at the chart that I put in the weekly market review, um, and it's actually skewed to the left, meaning there's a lot of areas that actually look undervalued. Um, which is maybe a little bit shocking to people. But there's reasons for this. It's because large areas of the market or the global market like the U.S. stock market and technology companies and growth companies are overvalued. So on a relative basis, there's a lot of uh, attractive opportunities out there, mm-hmm. value being the biggest one, um, that, that we see just the value um, uh, style in the United States, the value factor, and a lot of the sectors and areas that fall within that, that sector. All right, value in value. Okay, so- Hey, I wanna jump in on one thing. Go for it. So uh, one thing I was talking about was different time frames of investing. And I think there's a really cool stat out there that shows how much of the market right now is dominated by somebody playing a whole different game than we are. And first of all, we're not playing a game. What we're doing is pretty serious stuff, but we're long-term investors. So the things we talk about are really long-term. But some really interesting stats, uh, uh, you know, Goldman Sachs came out with a study recently that showed that when it comes to the short-term trading, like when it comes to algorithm trading, so there's like formulas out there doing really quick high-frequency trades, uh, there are studies of like 70 to 85% of all the trading is done really short-term like that, when just over 10 years ago, it was closer to 25%. Hmm. I mean, so most of that noise and activity and day-to-day volatility are people just playing a whole different thing than what we're doing. Exactly. I think by, by using this kind of composite of, of valuations and looking at it over a consistent time frame, um, we're making decisions for the next one, three, five years uh, on where we should be positioned. And we think that's how investors should position themselves so they don't get whiplashed, um, so they stay invested and, and can feel comfortable with our, our process. And we use valuation as a, as a starting point um, to, to arrive at those decisions. And, and that's why I, I felt it necessary to kind of re-mention it here in, in the, the review, especially as growth stocks have kind of taken the lead again this year, as Rusty mentioned. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the other thing that you wrote about, and this was about taxes. Now, we're past tax season, but this is always a good time to be thinking about taxes as investors because we should be planning for them really throughout the year. Um, so in your weekly three, you wrote about some helpful ways investors can add some tax alpha to their after-tax returns. Yeah, there's kind of boiled it down to three main areas um, that we kind of look at internally, and then also our, our advisors are a huge part of of helping with the taxes of clients. And in fact, a lot of our advisors actually do our clients' taxes. So um, 
you know, that's a, a huge assistance. But what we do internally, we do a lot of tax loss harvesting. Um, so that's cut probably the most commonly thought of way that an investment manager can add tax value versus a financial planner. Um, and so, you know, in, in our specific tax managed strategies, we will look for opportunities to harvest losses, take those opportunities um, to, to keep t- overall taxable gains in uh, down in the account. And one of the beauties of kind of the way we manage money we invest across a b- broad variety of asset classes. So as um, you know, things in certain years, beginning of 2016, commodities were negative, if for, for example. And that's a couple of years ago. But we could harvest those losses, um, reposition those assets. Um, and then as the market grew the rest of the year, we had that loss from earlier in the year that we could now use to offset gains later. Um, so there's ways that we can really work with um, the client portfolios to to make sure that they're still growing and they're still you know sticking with their risk budget mandate and the, and the investment themes, but yet we can keep taxable gains low by harvesting losses across positions and ETFs make it really easy for us to do that. There's two other ways to um, asset location um, is the other kind of tactic and and that's placing highly taxable income and highly taxable investments uh, that are taxed at you know, usually your income tax rate in a after-tax account or deferred, um, excuse me, like a deferred tax account, like an IRA. Um, Corporate bonds, high-yield bonds usually will kick off income that's fully taxable to you, and you don't, so you don't really want to pay that tax every year. You'd rather have it in an IRA. And then dividend income is taxed a little bit more um, favorably, uh, along with long-term capital gains, which are taxed about 15% for most people. So you can put those in your in your after-tax um, non-qualified accounts and, and feel more comfortable with that as, as one example. Mm-hmm. It can get pretty complicated. And then a lot, what a lot of people are facing nowadays are, are how to withdraw money from your account effectively. If you have 10 different accounts that say all over the place between your and your spouse's IRAs and Roth IRAs and um, after-tax accounts, taking those from certain places um, at different times can be very important for your long-term wealth. And so those things that uh, we, you know, we try to help our financial advisors along those lines as well and setting up accounts appropriately and things like that. But it, it can get uh, it's very involved and very complicated uh, very quickly. Yeah. It's a lot of information and a lot to digest. Um, and I think what you wrote about it being a reminder why our relationships with advisors are so important was um, true. Right. Very much so, and I think you know, in our in our master manager, kind of our higher net worth client um, strategies, where we um, pay a lot of attention to to taxes, it's very hands on with us and the advisors, and I think that really showcases it. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of work that goes into that. I mean, and and rightfully so. I mean, I have a couple of pet peeves when it comes to taxes. I always hate to say pet peeves because it sounds so negative, but a couple of things is is one is there's this saying, "Don't let the tax tail wag the dog." And that's where, like, you don't let taxes impact your investment decisions. But actually, I think it's the other, almost the other way around that people don't care about it enough. And one example of many is that right now the industry is so focused on just low fees that you see a lot of trading going like, I'm just making something up here, but there's a lot of activity like this. There's an ETF at like 10 basis points. That's really, really, really cheap. And there's a new ETF that does the same thing that's like at 8 basis points. And so somebody will trade from the 10 to the 8. And take all these taxes. I mean, it's so stupid, but they have a story they're 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 lowering costs. The other thing, which I always talk about, is 
there's sort of this notion that low turnover is tax friendly and you can draw the connection but actually if you're really tax aware if you're really trying to do the right thing is that you're going to have high turnover and you're going to be looking to take losses all year long like Grant does and the team does on the master manager strategy that he mm -hmm. talks about it takes a lot of work but to do it well it requires work those those are great points um, and i think ETFs in, in in tax loss harvesting make it make it really easy to to, you can turn over a lot of the account, but you, you have very good op alternatives to those existing positions that allow you to take that loss and then mm -hmm. still maintain that exposure. Right on. All right. Well, the final thing that you wrote about is artificial intelligence. Um, this is a topic that could make those advisors out there who are still working on setting up their websites pretty nervous. But should they be? Yeah, this, I deviated a little bit from my previous two topics, but I think that this is becoming a, a more interesting um, topic in the field of finance, I mean, in, in the field of just about everything, but from a news headline standpoint and just personal interest, um, it seems very, uh, it, you know, it's obviously very topical um, in, in my view. I don't have really an opinion at this point on, you know, what artificial intelligence, how it can be used properly and, and, and things of that nature. And I don't necessarily know if that's prudent at this point either, but I do have a lot of questions, I guess, um, that come mm -hmm. up. As, as part of this. Yeah, he had some interesting questions. Yeah, and I think a few of them is, so information. Um, a, artificial intelligence examines information um, where potentially a computer can analyze information, um, you know, more information and, and, and do it faster than a human, obviously. Um, but is that always better? Uh, you know that that that's always the question that comes comes to mind, or the biggest one that comes to mind for me. There's all this information out there, but there's a lot of it that's maybe not correct, or is having that information really going to lead to a prudent investment decision? So, uh, you know that that's a lot of it. Mm -hmm. um, how how much history does artificial intelligence need to learn from? Right. Like, um, there's certain ETFs that will invest based on historical news flow. Um, and, and things that they scrape basically from from the internet and from company filings, um, and then come to an investment conclusion as a as a result of that. And it sounds really cool, um, but but how much history are they using? Are they using the last two years? And what are they comparing that to? Uh, is news flow what they should be following? You know, and there's just <laughs> there's a lot of questions, obviously. And how much history is is embedded in? Um, these reporting requirements in the computers that these uh, mechan these systems use, um, and how much is really needed to make uh, adequate investment decisions. My favorite question was, will the AI advisor send me a birthday card or take me out? Oh, that was a great point. <laughs> I, I do think, obviously, the relationship part. You know, there's mm -hmm. there's an art, artificial intelligent uh, financial advisor out there now. Um, at least one online I saw, you know, that relationship is huge, right? And you, you trust someone with your money. And I know that computers uh, can remove a lot of biases and have a lot of potential, but the relationship part of this business is, is so big. And I just, I, I don't see that going away personally um, in any, anytime soon, um, you know, getting to know the family and, 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 the situation further than just in inputting questions in your computer. So with all those questions raised, what's your main takeaway on AI? That's, yeah, that's good. I mean, I think it's, it's a, a serious trend that will have serious impl implications um, for a lot of different areas. I mean, think about automation and, and cars, you know, things that are kind of quasi artificial intelligence, like big data, they're going to influence our lives in a lot of ways if they haven't already. Um, 
and, and just like technology in as you mentioned with with websites mm-hmm. and financial fields or in finance in particular you know embracing it properly right. um, is going to make our lives easier yeah, much more enjoyable much more efficient um, you know i'm sure in the medical field there's probably plenty of ways that artificial intelligence and Technology will make our lives longer if it hasn't already. So I think just embracing it, keeping an open mind um, is, is the best way to to attack something like this. But I think the jury is still out on on exactly what this looks like for, for our field in particular. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was a great topic. And this is yet one more example how I try to write something about. I try to write about a topic like a week mm-hmm. earlier, and then Grant follows up like <laughs> later, and then he writes about it better than I did. <laughs> Percy, I did enjoy your, your commentary on technology. I thought that was great. Uh, so maybe that was the inspiration. Exactly. There you go. Yeah, exactly. exactly. There you go. <laughs> right. Well, thanks for your insight today, Grant. Good to have you on the show. Great to be here as always. Yep. Thanks, Grant. All right. Well, let's turn now to well, actually, Coach Edis wrote this. He did. So, but you're yeah. gonna have to fill in for him because he is at a Morning Star conference in Chicago right now. Um, so he cannot join us. So I don't think you're gonna have as many movie references as he usually has. I watch a lot of movies too, but well, no, I'm not going to. <laughs> okay, well, do your best. Yep. All right. So he wrote about the race to zero in his weekly three that was published a couple of weeks ago. Um, that's mutual funds cutting costs for investors to compete with the increasingly popular ETFs. Yeah. And he did quite a bit of analysis to present a picture of what's happening in the marketplace. Um, what were his findings? Yep. So first of all, the reason why we're talking about this weekly three is, you know, again, the format for the weighing machine is we do talk about the latest weekly three, like mm-hmm. Grant just wrote it, and then usually the one right before that. And then we usually have an interview with somebody. Mm-hmm. It's kind of our standard format. And we've talked about every weekly three, but one that kind of slipped through the cracks was Koch's from a, a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And we didn't wait to record this when he was out of town because uh, he is actually <laughs> making his brain bigger at a conference right now. Right. It just sort of just happened. We just had too much content at once. But his weekly three was just loaded with goodies. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we're bringing it back, really. Okay. And so the race to zero concept, and again, Koch did a ton of research on this, basically looking at how expense ratios have changed, not only with mutual funds, but over with exchange-traded funds over almost the last 20 years. The data that he picked started in 2000. That's really when the data we have a really high degree of confidence in. But in short, uh, expense ratios have dropped across the board. And if you look at an equal-weighted expense ratio, that mutual funds, the average mutual fund has seen a 24% reduction in their expense ratios from 1.6 to about 1.2%. I'm, I'm kind of rounding it there. The same can be seen with actively managed funds and index funds. They've all dropped about 25% or so. Exchange-traded funds during that time have dropped from 72 to 45 basis points. So they've had a a, a reduction of almost 40% as well. Now, those are the equal-weighted expense ratios. And at CLS, we're always looking at equal-weighted and asset-weighted. So the asset-weighted, of course, is really boiling it all down to see what the real actual experience is of investors. And what's really interesting there is that the same trends, obviously in big reductions, even bigger reductions than the ones I just mentioned. Probably the only change is that while I said the average expense ratio for an ETF in 2000 was 72 basis points, so almost three quarters of 1%, it was only one-sixth of 1% or 16 basis points in 2000. And those numbers have actually increased, or it's actually 20 basis points in 2018. So out of all these different categories of mutual funds, exchange-traded funds, active, passive, whatever, 
whatever, in exchange-traded funds, the uh, asset-weight expense ratio has actually increased slightly uh, over the last 20 years. So I, that was a really interesting table, and you can almost get lost in the data, as I just did try and describe right. it. <laughs> well, boil it down to the main takeaway from all of that data. Yep. So the other thing to talk about, just real fast, is those are the fees. And Kosha also spent a lot of time talking about how the number of funds and the fund assets have also exploded there in both of those arenas. And, you know, first of all, one big interesting thing is, while well, obviously exchange-traded funds have just blown up, and they've uh, definitely done this over the last 10 years. Quite frankly, mutual funds, which are still a great financial innovation on their own right, they've also seen growth in number of funds and fund assets. And obviously, they've grown since, or even over the last 10 years. So they've still had growth, just not as explosive as ETFs. But really... What is the main takeaway right. is, and I think Kosha wrote it really well, he was talking about how ETFs are really rubbing off on mutual funds. Investors care about costs, and you're seeing a reduction in expense ratios, thus kind of the race to zero. It might be kind of a strong title saying zero, but there's definitely a race towards lower fees. But also that mutual funds are rubbing off on exchange-traded funds, where investors are willing to pay a little extra for alpha generation. When I say alpha generation, you're trying to actually beat the market, get a little extra return. And that's why the fees have actually increased for ETFs over the last almost 20 years because there's been more uh, innovations in the ETF world. There's more thematic ETFs. There's more smart beta ETFs that we talk about all the time, more actively managed ETFs. Uh, so anyway, they're kind of rubbing off on each other. Mm-hmm. All right. Interesting stuff. So the other thing that he wrote about was um, Kenneth French, who he recently met at a conference. He's a pioneer in factor investing, and he's best known for his work on the three-factor model. Yeah. Um, talk about what he learned from his presentation. Well, uh, it not. I mean, he just met uh, Kenneth French. That's, that's huge because he is one of the legends uh, in the industry, particularly from the academic perspective. And a lot of the things that he talked about are really important and, and have influenced portfolio managers and the way many people look at the markets. And I'll kind of break down just even the question you just had. So uh, when he's talking about a three-factor model, uh, Kenneth French was basically saying there are three things you can look at to basically explain the performance of any portfolio. And those three factors are, one he calls beta. So that's basically the sensitivity to the overall market. So if something has a beta of one, that means it should act just like the market. If it has a beta of 0.9, it should have about 90% of the return of the market. So one is beta. You take more risk, you get more return. The second thing is size. And basically, it is smaller companies tend to outperform larger companies over time. Um, though it hasn't necessarily been the case in some time frames, over time, it is a pretty uh, durable factor. The third thing is value investing. Now, we've just talked about with Grant how value investing hasn't worked of late, but when you look at the data over, going back over 100 plus years, that value is one of the more durable factors that work. And again, what value means is that companies that have lower valuations, so how much you pay for a dollar of earnings or dollar revenues, tend to outperform companies that are more expensively priced. So that's a three-factor model. And when he talks about um, uh, historic premiums, it's basically sort of that excess return you're going to get over time. The other things he talked about, too, and really what he was really driving at in this particular case is that he was looking at performance Mm -hmm. and that uh, managers and even factors can go through periods where they underperform. You can even look at periods of three to five years of returns, which are pretty common metrics. And basically, uh, statistically speaking, that is not long enough for a precise evaluation of active managers or factors. It could still just simply be skill or luck. And even at the 10-year time frame, you're still going to get you know, some measure where you know, market beta may not even work over a 10-year time frame. So I think those are the big takeaways that, that Kosher was really writing about. 
So basically using past performance might not be the best way to evaluate an active manager. That's what Kosha said, I, I, and I know exactly what he was saying. I, th I still think past performance is a variable to look at, but the way Kosha was referring to it is that just picking a fund or a manager or a strategy, just because it's done well over the last three or five years, which by the way, in my experience, is the most common factor when people pick a manager or a fund. Mm -hmm. What happens is that he found is that if you're picking a fund or manager that has done well over three years, the actually stretched out to other time frames too, they're more likely to underperform moving forward. Right. And the whole reason why is that things are just cyclical within the market, styles of investing, asset classes, factors, they all they all are cyclical. They all have their day in the sun. So what, what can we use to evaluate active managers if not past performance? Well, it's a great question. So there's a lot of things we can look at. At CLS, we do look at, uh, there's really kind of three different categories we look at things. And this is, I think, really useful for us. Um, and first of all, costs do matter. So we talked about that earlier. Lower costs generally mean higher rates of return over time, all else equal. And it's not just a function of an expense ratio, so how much you actually pay for the management, but there's also the portfolio turnover, which is not part of the expense ratio. So a fund that turns over its portfolio like two times a year, you compare that versus a fund or strategy that maybe holds positions instead of six months, they hold them for six years. Well, the first fund or strategy is just is making a lot more trades. There's transaction costs involved with that. And so all us being equal, lower turnover funds tend to outperform. So that's item number one, low cost. The second thing is dependability or reliability. And there's a couple of statistical measures we look at to see if we can really count on how how uh, stylistically pure that particular strategy or fund or manager might be. And a couple of statistical measures uh, we can look at, it's R-squared versus a benchmark, R-squared versus its category or light competition. And again, that's just a statistical way of just seeing how reliable it is versus those different kind of um, comparable benchmarks. Mm -hmm. The last thing is really looking at the kind of the quality of uh, the portfolio managers and the company that's running it. And obviously a lot of that requires a face-to-face, -face, but from a quantitative standpoint, you can look at vac uh, factors such as the size of the fund. Uh, all else being equal, a really large fund is not gonna be as nimble as a smaller fund. You can look at the portfolios. Do they own um, the fund themselves? Do they eat their own cooking? Again, funds that tend to have managers that own the fund they manage tend to outperform over time. So those are factors that we look at. And, those are, and, I, and past performance can still inform in a way, it's you just don't pick on a total return, but you can understand the behavior of that manager funder strategy, which is really the most important thing when building a portfolio. Right. And so the final thing um, that he wrote about was cyclicality, and you've mentioned that here as well, um, and how that kind of weighs into CLS's investment decision. So talk about how that factors in. Well, that's probably our biggest bias and kind of how philosophically we look at everything, that everything is cyclical in the markets. We talk about it all the time. And basically, uh, Kosher was writing about mean reversion, which basically means the farther you get away from the average, as more as that performance gap widens, that means it's eventually the greater the probability for performance to, re to reverse and kind of converge back to that long-term average. A lot of times it doesn't just simply converge back to long-term average. It usually overshoots it and goes the other way. Um, what it does mean is that investing and losing assets are really difficult to do from a, a psychological standpoint. Um, you could, like, their asset classes are getting beat up. If they're getting beat up, the news is talking about why they're getting beat up. And so if you're an investment manager and you buy that asset class or that security that's getting all that negative news, it can be really difficult because you really don't know when it's going to turn around, if it's going to turn around. And if it doesn't, then investors are going to say, well, it was so obvious. I read in the newspapers. Right. So value investing is extremely hard to do. 
one thing that Coach had talked about, he loves talking about this, is that he showed a whole bunch of different charts in, internally and in the commentary talking about where you see these, these huge gaps in relative performance and the gaps keep getting wider. But what he refers to them, they're like jaws of a shark. <laughs> right. And that the shark eventually is going to bite, which basically is a way that eventually that you're going to have mean reversion. I'm pretty sure his quote for the week was from Jaws. You know, he did have a Jaws reference. <laughs> right. Of course he would. Of course. Um, and also cyclicality is part of the reason that we favor international over domestic, right? Yep. yep. So since 2008, the U.S. has strongly outperformed international. And as a result, uh, U.S. now has much higher valuations than international. Again, a big reason why we like international. It is the, the widest gap we've ever seen. And... Uh, that trend does appear to be reversing, which is even more uh, powerful, is that when you get that huge gap and it starts to close, that's a very powerful signal. Not only is it international, it's also growth versus value stocks. And again, it depends how you want to cut the data and look at the data, but uh, value stocks are the cheapest they've been versus growth stocks by some measures or the longest period of underperformance, however you want to cut it. And usually when you get that sort of huge gap, you don't really know when it's going to turn, uh, but eventually it will. And just from personal experience, I, I remember in the late 90s, I've always been a value guy. And I just remember that growth versus value was crazy, silly, stupid uh, in the late 90s, mm -hmm. but it still took a couple years before it reversed. And when it reversed, value caught up. And uh, But for the value managers in the late 90s, it was a very tough environment. Right. Okay, well, that um, is going to do it. That brings us to our final segment of the yes, show, which this is, is Rusty's the best topic. And this week, Rusty is putting me on the spot. I wanted to turn the tables on you. Yes. You have been, you're always so the interviewer, excited. and now you're the interviewee. Mm -hmm. But I think you actually have really important things to say here. Okay. Of course, we'll we didn't see. prompt Maybe. any of this. So some of these questions here, I was probably, sh <clears throat> I should have given you some in advance because you'll probably could have thought about it and probably mm -hmm. will get a good answer. Right. But I think you're going to have good answers anyway. So first of all, how long have we been working together? What year well, was what it? What is it? I think it was 2014. I started, yeah. So I know, I could have looked up before I asked that question. That's four years, yeah. So we've worked on a ton of things, obviously mm -hmm. podcasts, yes. The Wing Machine, yep. um, the book Higher Calling. The book we Higher Calling, it. check uh, it out on Amazon. Which I still I have to autograph another 30 things today. They're on my desk today, nice. so it's still doing well. Thank you. Um, the bios for all the employees. Yeah, profiles. Which yeah. actually, these profiles have been really, really cool. Yeah, they have been really interesting and fun to do. And people, people read them. They talk about them. And okay. so, again, if anybody wants to find out anything about the investment team or the sales team mm -hmm. or anybody that is interfacing with clients, just about everybody has a bio or a profile. Yeah. And so you can find out more about them and, and really well done. And, of course, everything we write at CLS, at least from the investment team, mm -hmm. you get a chance to look at. It. Comes through me. Nothing yep. goes out without going through me. So, officially, you are a freelancer. I am a freelancer. So, so you're a free agent. You can do this for anybody, anywhere, anytime. That's right. So yeah. if anybody wants to get in touch with me. And how would they get in touch with you? Well, they can send me an email. It's probably the best, easiest way to do it. Robin Murray, R-O-B-Y-N-M-U-R-R-A-Y, 28 at gmail.com. Yeah. You can find me on LinkedIn, too. Connect with me that way. So obviously... Um, you know, people can check out your work, mm -hmm. not only in these podcasts, but check out those profiles, which are, again, really well done. Um, obviously, they can just check in your background. Tell us about your background. 
My background? Um, okay, so I was born in South Africa, which is why every now and then you hear a little bit of an accent, yeah. which is why now talking about it, it comes back stronger. I know, I just did now that you said that. It <laughs> right. really is. And I'm going to be going to South Africa in like a month, and I'm going to be calling into the podcast from there. And when I do, my accent's probably going to be really thick. That's going to be fun. Yeah. Because yep. like it starts to come back on the plane ride over usually. Uh-huh. The closer I get, the more it comes back. Oh, See, fun. it's coming back now. It is right now. That's great. <laughs> So yeah, that's about it. Okay, so how did you get to the United States? Where'd you go to school? Tell us more. Oh, okay, let's see. We want to know about Robin Murray. Okay, that's a very long story. Um, okay, so we came. My, I came with my mom in January 2000. She came a few months earlier. Um, we lived in Johannesburg, and Johannesburg kind of had a bad crime wave. Uh-huh. So it was the murder capital of the world for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, so we decided to immigrate, and we went to Arizona, which is why I ended up at ASU yeah. for a Arizona while. Arizona State. Arizona yeah. State. Yeah. Got my um, bachelor's in journalism there. Then I married somebody from Kearney, and that's how I ended up in Nebraska. Kearney, Nebraska. Yeah. Heck yeah. Yeah. All right. So, and now I'm settled in Omaha. South Africa, Nebraska, it's, it's similar. It's so similar. It's similar <laughs> in the sense that it's more similar than Arizona was, Scottsdale particularly. Yeah. Because Nebraska is very much about farmland, and South Africa is also very there's a lot of rural parts of South Africa and people are really connected to the land the way that Nebraska's are so yeah yeah so grad school grad school um in Chicago at Northwestern I did that after being a news director at a public radio station and getting a little bit burned out on that yeah I went to grad school so that I could freelance full-time really was the main point yeah it's one of the premier journalism schools yeah and I was a McCormick scholar so there you go there you go awesome (laughs) and so for work where did you work um, so, yeah, before I came to CLS and um, started freelancing full-time, I was the news director over at a public radio station here in Omaha. We have a little um, classical music station that had um, a pretty cool newsroom um, that we built, me and some interns and some students that I rallied around. We didn't have a lot to pay them, but we made our we made ourselves sound a lot bigger than we were. It was really fun. Um, but I just got a little bit burned out. Yeah. Um, so that's when I decided to go to grad school and freelance full time. Um, yeah. So then I came over here. Okay. So why I think this interview is, is so useful Mm -hmm. is because most of our audience, of course, are financial advisors is that, as I always say, what we do at CLS and, you know, what advisors are doing is first of all, you do have to manufacture a portfolio and there's a rate of return, but perhaps even more important is everything that goes around that. It's the communication, right. it's the education, it's the counseling that goes with it. So I have a bunch of questions sort of riffing on this. Okay. Um, so first of all, sort of as an outsider to the industry, you've yes, like grown so. yourself into this. <laughs> right. So what have you learned about the industry? Oh what's important? What's not important? What are your big takeaways? Well, well, let me just say that coming into this industry, I knew absolutely nothing about finance, like literally nothing. Yeah. So the first few um, articles that you sent me to edit, I was literally looking up terms. <laughs> going, what the heck does that mean? Um, I made up some of those words anyway. Yeah, just to throw yeah, me off. Yeah. Right. I thought that was, there was like no definition <laughs> for that. Um, but yeah, I think I've learned a lot about the industry from, I mean, obviously coming from nothing. Um, but I think from a communication standpoint, what I've learned is that there's, there's so much technical information that you guys have in your brains and so much of it is 
um, really hard to communicate to people like me who don't have a background in it and they don't know what you're talking about. Um, so I think what I enjoy doing for you guys as best I can is to try and make that a little bit easier to understand and just really clarify um, and simplify a lot of what what yeah. you guys are writing just to get that across to people who, I mean, generally our readers have some knowledge of it. They don't have zero knowledge of it. We're not writing for average investors. We're writing for advisors. Yeah. Um, but it's still really important, I think, to just take all of that technical information and make it really as easy as possible to understand because those advisors are going to have to then communicate that to investors who don't know at all. So, gosh, my next question, I think you just sort of answered the keys to good communication. I mean, just yeah. in general. Simplify. I mean, yeah. that's really what I do when I edit is just clarify and simplify and take, you know, make 10 words into two words when we can and just just get it as directly as possible. Um, I think sometimes writers want to make it sound really impressive and they kind of add extra words in and extra phrases in and extra description in. Um, that really just takes away from the message. So I try and trim that out as much as I can just to get it. I, always, I know I would try to keep the author's voice. Yeah. I don't want to just rewrite it completely. Um, but you yeah. know, there's sort of like I had teachers that talked about, I always heard this advice, and it's kind of what you said is, hey, whatever you just wrote, take away a paragraph yeah, or a right. sentence or words. Or I remember having teachers like, okay, you wrote it. Now I want you to reduce 100 words. Mm-hmm. You got to yeah. figure out how to do it. And it always works. It always makes it better. Yeah. And I think like um, coming from a public radio background, especially, um, and I, you know, I, I um, contributed to NPR and some um, national stations and stuff and worked with some really great editors there. And that's always what we did. We'd have, I mean, you also have a clock that you have to write to. So you can't, your story can't go more than two and 30 seconds, yeah. two minutes, 30 seconds. So you really have to trim it down um, and working with them. You always kind of going through that process, you always felt bad like the stuff that you'd labored over was just being hacked but they always made it so much better because yeah. you didn't need all of that extra stuff so obviously i can guess your opinion on this so mm -hmm. so many people in the industry i think when they're doing presentations whether it's commentary um or it's verbal presentations i guess there's a couple of things one first of all they don't really say anything they feel like they they're just saying the same thing everybody else is saying. That's one thing. That's I think that's boring and not useful. But the other thing, which I think is probably a bigger problem, is a lot of people take the approach, if I have the stage, if I have a platform, my most important thing is establishing authority and credibility. Mm. So it's almost like you don't have to understand me. Right. You just have to think I'm one really smart person. Right, exactly. And really the most important thing is to establish relatability, yeah. right, and to actually communicate to people in a way that they can understand and remember. All right, here's a question I have. So what are your tips or what do you do when you have writer's block? Well, I have writer's block at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you're going to ask me for advice right. what to do? <laughs> so one thing you might, you, I don't think you do know this, but I'm actually writing a book about growing up in South Africa. Oh, great, yeah. yeah. I um, was going to ask you what you're working on yeah. now. So, so that's, that's great. I've been working on that forever, and it's probably going to take me forever to finish. But I am a bit stuck at the moment. Um, and I think, honestly, the thing to do is to just write through it. So just sit down in front of your computer and write anyway, even if it just comes out total nonsense and nothing useful. Because I think sometimes that, that block is just there's something in there that you don't know how to access. And so you just have to 
get it out somehow and reach it somehow. And that's what I've been trying to do. And I still feel a little bit blocked, but it is helping. And also just kind of like taking the structure away. So if you have to, if you say like, well, I'm blocked because I have to write this 1000 word, you know, whatever for this X publication and you have the structure around what you have to do, take that away and just write um, and then kind of get that all out and then try and fit it into the structure later. Yeah. I guess they say you have to write every day. Yeah, and just, you know, just and it's it, like a job, you know. Right. It's not it's not always easy and it's not always fun, but you have to do it. If you think about all the great artists, all the great musicians, all the great writers, they are supposedly writing every day and right. they obviously did a lot of crap. Right. You know, exactly. you only see it wasn't the good always stuff. brilliant. Exactly. So, um can people become more creative or do you think it's just something innate? How do you train mm. that or make it better? That's an interesting question. I think um I think there's definitely, you know, some people who are just kind of more creative innately than others. Um, but I do think that there's there's definitely exercises that you can do. It's kind of like a muscle that you can work on, you know, and, yeah. and um, just putting yourself, putting yourself in that situation where, it's, where creativity can um, work its way out. Yeah. Um, I think just pushing yourself into new situations, taking away boundaries of expectations of what you're you're supposed to do and just trying to um, think in the That's moment. That's actually a great tip. If you think about it, everybody gets in routines. Right. And routines and habits are really important, mm -hmm. but it can suppress creativity if you just force yourself to, it's, you know, driving home a different way or, yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff. It does actually kind of break stuff open sometimes, which is really interesting. Yeah, that's why I find that, that um, traveling, I always feel like I'm. I write my best when I'm traveling because you're just kind of totally out of everything that's familiar. That's a great tip. It's so obvious. This thing about it. Okay, here's another question. So, what about the person who says I can't write? Mm. Now, I'll tell you the truth, there are people who really can't write, <laughs> but some people can. Yeah. So, what what do you tell them? How do you encourage them? How do you get better? Yeah. Well, obviously, if we have a copywriter like you, it gets all cleaned up and it looks great anyway. Right. But, I mean, what what do you do in a situation like that? I can't write. I think to get better at writing, um, you need to read more. So, And I know that everyone on your team reads a lot. We do. Um, which I think is really helpful. Um, but when you're reading, think about it um, from a writer's standpoint. So think about, you know, what they're doing um, that's really making it more um, relatable to you or making you connect more with it. And just kind of... I mean, all, everyone on your team also is so good at analyzing. They can just analyze, right, what they're yeah. reading um, and the style of it. And, yeah, like sometimes it comes naturally to some people and not naturally to others, but you definitely um, can get better at it for sure. Practice. Yeah. But, you know, I guess if you boil it all down, writing and communicating, well, at least writing is a, a little bit like managing portfolios. Some people may not just really not want to do it or they can't do it and mm -hmm. they need to outsource it like and they me. need to outsource it to you. <laughs> right. This wasn't meant to be an advertisement, but it's mm -hmm. coming that way. It and is. quite frankly, anybody interested in writing a bio or getting a profile, Robin is awesome at it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, all right. So, so you're writing a book. What else you're working on? Tell us about personal life, fun. Personal life. What do you do? Um, well, the main thing I do, so I have, a, so for work, I have a few different clients. I, um, 
I write development proposals for the University of Nebraska Foundation. So yeah. that's like fundraising kind of stuff. And I proofread all of their marketing material. Proofreading I actually really love. Like I have that weird organizational brain that I really love putting things in order. So it's actually kind of more fun to me than writing, honestly. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I take care of my 16-month-old son who's a little miniature crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, me and my husband both work at home, and so we kind of have shifts with him and shifts working, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, other than that, we're renovating our house. We've been working on our house for the last four years. We've just done the out- started on the outside of the house, and it's looking yeah. really nice. Um, and getting ready to go to South Africa. We're going to go to South Africa for a month. You're going to stay out in the bush, like wow. total sticks, animals walking around all over the place. Hey, wait a second. If you're awesome. out in the bush, how are we going to do this podcast so we can they get They go Wi-Fi in the bush. It's all right. They okay. go Wi-Fi. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, not, you, it's not that. You know, it's funny because being from Nebraska, when I went out to Boston, when I went to school, people used to ask me questions similar to that. Like, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Well, there's definitely, no, there's definitely parts of the bush that don't have anything. I mean, you, you're bringing your own water when you go out there, but we're going to, you know. It's it's in the bush, but it's the civilized part of the bush. That's great. Well, Robin, that's the interview. Awesome. Well, that wasn't so bad. bad. It wasn't that bad at all, was it? No. Is there anything else you want to say? I don't think so. It's been really fun working with you guys for the last four years. Heck, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the reviews and feedback have been great on this podcast, too. So we're going to keep it rolling. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it. Rusty, do you want to end on some Yeah, I have something else I want to say. Go for it. Stay balanced. Yeah. All right. Okay, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to CLS is the Weighing Machine. Thank you for your time and trust in CLS Investments. CLS is the Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at CLS Investments, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have questions or feedback about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty.vanneman at clsinvest.com.